The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. Later on, I'll be talking with Phil Plate, author of the Bad Astronomy blog on Slate and science director of Science Getaways, a vacation company that adds a unique roster of science-themed activities and adventures to create an all-inclusive holiday experience. But first, Desiree Shell is ready to find out how the natural world around us might be trying to do us in. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Desiree Shell, and my guest today is Toronto's Dan Riskin, an evolutionary biologist and passionate ambassador of science to popular audiences. Since 2011, Dan's co-hosted the world's only hour-long daily science show, Daily Planet, on Discovery Canada. He's also the host of Animal Planet's wildly successful show, Monsters Inside Me, about parasites. He's here to talk about his first book, Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You. Dan, good to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, why, when we have what seems like every other author trying to convince us that the natural world is is beautiful and benevolent, uh, this wonderful place that humans somehow need to get back to, why would you come along and tell us that nature is, in fact, selfish, scary, and apparently kind of hates us? Why? Why would you do that, sir? Well, because that's kind of how I see it. And in my defense, I think it's more beautiful for its ugliness. I, I think that the fact that nature is scary and that it evokes these feelings of disgust or these feelings of terror or these feelings of, of just pure emotion, I think that's what, what really gets me about nature. I mean, when you watch a beautiful David Attenborough scene, you know, you're, you feel like you're just like, oh, it's so beautiful. And it really is beautiful to look at. But if I threw you out there with the bison being chased by the coyotes or something like that, you'd probably get some adrenaline going. And that sort of visceral feeling that nature gives me as, you know, I'm a bat biologist. And, and I've had that feeling being out in the woods and hearing a weird noise and having a snake fall out of a tree and land on my net where I was trying to catch bats. And I want to share that with people. And so I think that talking about the ways that nature evokes emotion, I think, is a way to connect people to nature in a way that biologists, frankly, are connected to nature. That, you know, it, it really is. Beautiful is only a small fragment of it. And there are all these other great pieces that I don't want people to miss out on. Well, you also state outright that uh, one of your goals with the book is to figure out whether you really love your son. Can you, can you explain that? It, it was a fun process. The book I was working on uh, during the first uh, two years of my son's life, and I had never been a father before, and it was cool because I would write this passage about, and so then the bird, you know, defending its DNA, obviously will attack a predator, even though it's dangerous for the bird because it's made a genetic investment, and so it's willing to do things that maybe are tough for the bird because it'll help its offspring. And then I'd finish writing that, and then I'd hear my baby crying upstairs, and I'd drop what I was doing and run upstairs and try to rock my baby back to sleep and it was very obvious to me that I was doing exactly what the bird was doing right I was ready to drop everything and look after my own offspring and if I was willing to say that the bird only does this because it's looking after its DNA then why should I say something different about myself because my experience and the bird's experience are so similar um, what is the common thread and where does human love as a special different thing from what birds feel where does that fit into it and and can i still have my cake and eat it too and talk about the evolutionary origins of love but also have it be a magical thing and so that's the 
that's sort of the thread that goes through this whole book as I sort of explore the dark side of nature, trying to see how far that permeates into what I consider um, one of the most important, beautiful, loving, wonderful things about being a human that I have, which is my, my fatherhood and my son. Well, I get the impression that you wanted us to feel uncomfortable <laughs> right off the bat with this book. Yeah, yeah. I well, I went. I I mean, so for me, yeah. The story I start with is about Georgia, and Georgia's not a place. Georgia's an organism. And um, when I was um, when I was a master's student uh, living in Edmonton, I got a. Uh, I went on a trip to go try to catch bats in Belize, and we had this big trip, and it was very successful. And and I was looking at these bats, and I was feeling like I was seeing nature, and I was understanding nature, and it was really cool. But then when I got home, I had a mosquito bite on the top of my head that started growing, and it turns out that what I had was something called a botfly. So what a botfly does is it's this fly that lives in Belize and what it does is it catches a mosquito in the air, lays eggs on its abdomen and then lets the mosquito go. And then the mosquito goes about its business and bites somebody and unwittingly drops off the egg from this botfly when it does so. So I was catching bats one day, didn't even notice that a mosquito bit the top of my head and dropped an egg off. And maybe it's because I didn't wash my hair every single night while I was in Belize. I don't know for sure. But I did, this this egg did hatch into a larva and then it went into the hole that the mosquito had made and then it lodged itself in there with backward pointing spines and just started eating my flesh and growing. And when it was small, I didn't even feel it. But as it started to grow, once I got back to Edmonton in Canada, um, it was starting to, I could feel almost like a, a pinching feeling. And so I described that in the first chapter of the book, what it was like to sort of not feel anything. And every once in a while, I'd get a little reminder. And I knew right away that I probably had a botfly. And I looked it up and I got all the information about it because, you know, as a biologist going into an area, you, you look up what, all, what are all the diseases I can get while I'm down there. So I knew to worry about botflies. I looked it up. I found out that if I'd let the botfly get to full size, it would probably be about an inch long before it popped out of my flesh and then fell to the ground and in its native habitat would then molt into a fly and continue on its life cycle. But of course, I knew what it was. So I had it surgically removed and um, I put it in a jar, which I keep at my desk, and I'm just turning my head now to look at it. There you are. And I named, I named her Georgia because it was Georgia on my mind. And oh. the thing is that, like, this, this is, you know, when people say, are you at one with nature? Well, that's how you get to be at one with nature. It's when you experience a parasite and you realize that all those pretty animals out there on your nature documentary all of them are chock full of parasites. And in fact, if you made a list of all the animals that live in the world, more than half of your list would be parasitic species. Um, you start to realize that this really is an important part of how nature works. And by getting a parasite, I really feel like I got to take part in that and to understand nature in a visceral, different way. It's interesting that, that you would take this kind of approach with the book because you are a fantastically enthusiastic writer. I mean, the, the book is joyful. I can't think of a, of a better word. You are thrilled to be talking about these things. But, uh, it, you know, keeping with the make everyone really uncomfortable theme, uh, you've also structured the book in a super creepy way, uh, according to the Seven Deadly Sins. I am passionate about the natural world and I do, I am enthusiastic about it. And the place that comes out for me is if I'm ever at a dinner party and I, I'm trying to make a first impression with somebody. So I, bats are my thing, right? I love bats. And inevitably you go to a dinner party and you know, it's maybe, uh, you know, lawyers or somebody that doesn't think a lot about biology typically. And you say something about, well, I did my PhD on bats and they say, Oh, I don't like bats at all. Immediately, 
I've got a challenge, right? And it's like, I'm going to win these people over to like bats. That's what I'm going to do. And that attitude, you know, and the best way to do it is to make them laugh, right? If you can tell them about how vampire bats vomit into each other's mouths to help each other out, then, you, you know, you're going to get a facial reaction. You're going to get, you're going to get some hormones going in their blood. You're going to get them to smile. And maybe when the whole experience is over, they're going to at least think differently about bats. And so this is what, that's sort of my strategy that I've tried to take with the whole book. But as I was researching, like if you try to challenge yourself to find things in nature that you shouldn't talk about at the dinner table, you are in for an avalanche because it's disgusting out there. I mean, you've got animals ripping their genitals off. You have, you know, sort like these weird worms that are having, you know, penis fencing. They have two penises each and they're having a sword fight in the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, like there's some really good stuff there. And if you try to sort of, I had too much, I just had an avalanche of it. And I was complaining to my wife, who's also an evolutionary biologist. And I was saying like, I don't know what I'm going to do. There's too much. And she just said seven deadly sins and bang, it was immediately clear that the really fun way to do this book was going to be to go through the seven deadly sins. And for each one of them, challenge myself to try to show that animals do it even worse than humans do. And so for some like wrath or, or lust, it's not so hard. But then in other cases like uh, envy, for example, I had a good, I had a good challenge ahead of myself. And, and it was a lot of fun going through the literature, trying to find scientifically accurate ways to back up that position. Okay, well, let's start with greed. Uh, maybe mm. give us an overview of that. I started with greed because it was a nice way to sort of just get into the, the idea of selfish evolution, you know, evolution that, that, that is on, on the self, not on the population, and, and it's on the individual. And so for an individual animal out there, it, the name of the game is to pass on your DNA, not to pass on your species DNA and not to conserve the world and not to help the ecosystem. It's to pass on your DNA. And it doesn't matter what it takes to do that. If you have to hurt the people around you, if you have to hurt your mate, if you have to hurt anyone, that's fine as long as you pass on your DNA. And so the place that I think that really shows through is a place called Goff Island, which is this island in the South Atlantic that um, it's, it's miles from anywhere. I mean, it's completely isolated. And there are a whole bunch of seabirds, like albatrosses and stuff, that lay eggs there because that's where they, if they live in the ocean down there, that's a good place to land. There are no predators there, so everything was great. They would lay eggs on the ground. There were no trees. So they just lay their eggs. The eggs would hatch. Baby albatross grows up. Then baby albatross flies off. And, and you know, everything's fine for tens of thousands or even millions of years. I'm not exactly sure how long things were going fine for. But I do know that about 200 years ago, some humans went there with their nice boat. And they accidentally dropped off some mice. And the mice that they dropped off, we presume, were sort of just normal mice. You know, here's some mice. They're on the island. And the mice started maybe scavenging on eggs or dead seabirds. But as time went on, these mice started looking for other opportunities for food. And a few of them started to bite the baby seabirds that were still, like, that hadn't died yet. And the mice very rapidly went through this evolutionary, basically, gradient where they took them from being seed specialists all the way to being meat specialists. And so it's been 200 years, but now these mice that have overrun the entire island are two to three times the size of a normal mouse. They have sharp teeth and they are aggressive. And so you can pull up video from a scientific paper 
paper, and I have a link to it in my book. But you can pull up video of the of an albatross chick just sitting on its nest, minding its own business in the pitch black, and you're looking with night vision scope, and all of a sudden one mouse comes over and tries to bite its eye, and it sort of flinches, and then another mouse comes, and another mouse, and before long this thing is being swarmed with mice. It's like the worst thing you can possibly imagine. And they're swarming this albatross, and they're taking bites out of it, and the researchers say that you can find an albatross with a gaping hole in the middle of its back that you can see its internal organs through because the mice just eat it, eat it, eat it until it's dead and then they just keep on eating and the albatross has no way to defend itself against these mice. And so for the mice... This is kind of a bad strategy overall because eventually they're going to run out of food. They're going to kill all the albatrosses. You know, all the birds are going to go extinct off the island. And then the mice are going to run out of food too, and it's going to be very bad. A better strategy would be for the mice to only eat the things that die naturally or maybe to only cull a small portion of the birds that are on the island. But the mice aren't planning for the group. They aren't thinking about the future. They're just trying to pass on their DNA. So if you can imagine being a mouse on that island... The name of the game is to get meat faster than the mice around you that are competing for food. So you have to be as aggressive as possible, you know, have your babies and try to help your babies compete as aggressively as possible. And that it's that intense pressure and the intense intense selection that has changed mice so rapidly over 200 years into the monsters that they are now. And eventually it's going to drive them into an evolutionary corner where they go extinct. But because evolution is such a, a process that's focused on the individual, they don't have a choice. They're headed into this bottleneck. And so that's where I think greed and selfishness come together really beautifully in these mice. You can see it just just perfectly is because the mice just don't care about anyone but themselves. They don't care about the planet. They don't care about the island. They don't care about the birds. They don't care about the other mice. They just care about eating. And that selfishness is what dominates nature. That is when you look at the decisions that all the animals make out there, it always comes back to passing on DNA in that same selfish way. In the case of the mice, it's bad for the environment. In other cases, it might be good for the environment environment, but it doesn't matter about the environment. It just matters about the individual. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Dan Riskin about his book, Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You. Okay, on to most people's favorite, lust. What role Mm. does that play in the natural world? Lust. Oh, man. I had so many good stories for this chapter. I didn't even know where to start. My favorite, hands down, has got to be the spider that rips off its own genitals. I mean, anytime an animal is willing to rip off, like, the whole thing is that, like, if we were really in charge of ourselves and our DNA wasn't pulling the, you know, wasn't the puppet master, then humans or any other animal would try to live as long as possible and have a good life. But what you see animals doing all the time, and humans too, is making decisions that shorten lifespan just so they can have sex. Like, it's ridiculous. It's a dumb decision, you know, but really, you know, teenagers are a perfect example of the way animals think. And so you have this spider, Nephalengus, and the males are like exactly the size of the kind of thing that the females would like to eat. So if a male goes anywhere near a female to try to mate with her, she will probably eat him. So he should, if he were smart, and if he were not trying to pass on his DNA, and if he wasn't so obsessed with sex, the male would just go live its life, you know, go feed, go hide, go just be a spider and do your thing. But no, 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 the the male's just too horny for that. So he goes out, he finds a female, he approaches her very, very carefully. If he's lucky, she doesn't eat him. And then he starts trying to mate with her. And he's got two penises on the sides of his head and he puts those into the place where they need to go. And then he's mating with her, but she might eat him at any moment. So what he does is he rips his own genitals off of his body, leaves them behind sticking into the female, and then makes a break for it. And while the penises are pumping away in the background, he runs away and tries to escape. Now, three quarters of the time she'll eat him, which is bad, but for his DNA, it's actually okay because now she's distracted 
distracted by a meal while his penises are doing the thing in the background and he's getting his sperm into her. But if, uh, if he does escape, then things get even more interesting because he will go and stand just outside her reach and he will fight off any males who come over to try to mate with her as well. So if any other male is coming over to try to try to have sex with her, he's like, no, 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 I've already made my deposit at the sperm bank, thank you very much. I don't want to have any other male sperm anywhere near my sperm because I want to be the father of all those eggs. And so he will fight the other males. And so this kind of like, why on God's green earth would you bother to do that male spider? The truth is that we as humans make decisions that are analogous. I mean, there's a study that shows that men, for example, could live 15 to 19 years longer on average if they would just cut off their testicles before puberty and live their lives as eunuchs. Now, find me as somebody that wants to do that and I will give you a latte. That's, that's, my, that's my promise to you is if you can find a man who wishes, you know, who wants to have those chopped off, you get a free latte, even though their life is 15 to 19 years shorter than it would be otherwise. And so these kinds of decisions, you know, it shows just how important lust is to animals and how important sex is. It's not just like something that animals do when they have spare time. They're obsessed with it and they're obsessed with it the same way, you know, we were in high school and it is exactly, it is the strategy that works best for animals. But is, is sex dangerous for the female of any species? Because I was reading the litany of of case studies and examples that you included in the book and I am I was I was feeling pretty bad for the little guys is all I'm saying it's it's bad for it's bad for males, but it can also be tough on females for sure. So I mean, like bed bugs. You know, we all love to uh, hate bed bugs, but I, you know, there is something about bed bugs that might even make you have sympathy for them. This is the dinner conversation again. If somebody says they hate bed bugs, try this on them to see if it makes them at least feel sympathy for them. Um, a female bed bug is a creature that feeds completely on blood, and so it lives in your hotel room. You go and you have a nice, you go to the motel and you uh, you lie down and go to sleep. This thing comes out of the electrical socket, crawls across the floor, climbs up into your bed, bites you while you're sleeping, drinks your blood, and then she turns around and goes back across the floor to head for her light socket again. Now, at that moment, as she's crossing the floor, she is at her most fertile. And the males can sense that because they have an excellent sense of smell, so they approach her. Now, male bed bugs are not very polite. I, it, in, she has a hole through which she will lay eggs, but they don't put their penises in that hole. What the male bedbugs have are sword-like penises, and what they do is they just jump on her and then stab her in the abdomen with their penis and then inject sperm into just her body cavity, not even where it's supposed to go. And then she has to deal with this mess, so she's got immune cells that will go and you know, because first of all, if there's, <laughs> I'll tell you something you might not have known, that is that a bed bug's penis is quite dirty. So it's covered with fungi and bacteria that are not good for the inside of a female bed bug. So she's got immune cells that have to clean up that mess, but she's also got cells that will take the sperm that's been deposited in the wrong place and move it to where she needs it to go. And when this happens, it is called traumatic insemination, and that trauma has a real cost, and people have measured how much it reduces the lifespan of a bed bug beyond what it would be if it, if it didn't mate. Now, the female needs to mate, so she wants this to happen once, but one mating would be enough like 25 times as many sperm as she's ever going to need in her entire life. The problem she has is that as she makes her way across the floor, this will happen to her like five times where different males will jump on top of her and, and stab her with their penises and mate with her over and over and over as she makes her way across the floor. It's got to be terrible. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a bed bug. Maybe she loves it more than anything in the world. I don't know. But it does reduce her lifespan. Every single time a male jumps on her, her lifespan is decreased. But for the males who are selfishly just thinking about themselves, 
it, there is always a benefit to being the last male to jump on her because if the if you're if you're the last male you will be the father of about two-thirds of her babies and all the other males before you will only make up collectively the remainder and so even though she's closer to death every time this happens there is an incentive a genetic incentive for these males to do this to her so to me that it kind of is like the extreme for this whole you know, when you try to imagine what it's like to be an animal, it seems like this is just the one that, that makes me stop and go, wow, it really is brutal out there for a lot of animals. And I don't like bed bugs feeding on me, but I do kind of feel bad for the female bed bug. I desperately want to invite you to a dinner party. <laughs> I'll come. Done. Oh. Okay. So um, how, about, how about sloth? You've used parasites as an example. Yeah, I mean, as I go through the book, and you know, one of the things that that comes to mind just as we finish up with the bed bugs, you know, there are all these people that really want to make nature into a parable for how we should live our lives, right? There are all these people who say, well, if it's natural, it's good. And you hear this with foods, you hear it with exercises, you hear it with whether we sit down or stand up at our computers. We, we, it's just, it's everywhere. And people have this, this, this instinct that if they hear natural, that must mean it's good. But the bed bug story I just told is it. Perfect example of something that is totally natural, but that absolutely has nothing to do with what we should be doing with our time as humans. And and if if anything is is like the opposite of what humans should be thinking about in terms of what we should be doing with our time. And so the challenge um, that I put that I give to the reader is, you know, if somebody says something's natural, what does that mean? Is natural always good? You know, when people talk about marriage equality, people love to say, well, it takes a man and a woman to make a baby, and that's natural, and so that's what it should be. And then people who are proponents of gay marriage say, well, hang on, there are penguins where males will will pair up, there are bats where you have males mating with males. I mean, this happens in nature, so it's good. And the point that I think the bedbugs make so clearly is that you can find, if you want to use nature as your like litmus test, you are going to find things that are just not okay. And so we should just throw nature off the table. It's great to look at it, it's great to be inspired by it, it's great to think about it, but it is not a justification for anything. And so you know, moving things into the, the, the sloth chapter that you mentioned, people love to talk about how hardworking animals are. You know, like right. a horse is so athletic and it runs so well, or a beaver is so industrious and builds this whole dam, or the, the bird is going and finding worms and bringing them back to the nest. But a lot of animals are pretty lazy. And like, you know, the majority of animals being parasites, being a parasite is a pretty good way to go through life because you don't actually have to do that much work for the most part. You just sit in somebody's gut as a worm and just feed off the things they ate or eat the host itself. You know, eat the side of the stomach. And there are tons and tons of parasites that do this all the time. And so I've sort of considered those the lazy animals or the slothful animals. And so I, for a whole chapter, I get to go on about just the most disgusting, vulgar, and lazy of the animals. And I, I'm inspired by parasites. I think they're just the coolest thing in the world. Well, I always wonder, are there any downsides to being a parasite? Because cause it does sound like the definition of easy street. It, well, so a lot of parasites have a pretty tough go of it. I mean, if you imagine being a roundworm, okay, so let's say you're a pinworm. All right. So you live in somebody's colon, and, you know, when the person's sleeping, you can detect changes in the blood chemistry, or I don't exactly know how they do it. But if you are a pinworm inside a human's colon, they can tell when you're sleeping, and then they, they stick out of your bum hole, and they lay eggs around the anus, and then they go back in. And what happens is the person wakes up in the morning and they have an itchy bum and then they scratch their bum and then they go and cook breakfast and give the eggs to everybody else in the family. So this is like, this is a great strategy for the parasite and you're thinking, hey, easy street. But really, 
for that roundworm, I mean, it's a pretty tough life. I mean, you're, you're in somebody's bum for starters, so that's not that fun unless you're into that. And, you know, like, how many of those eggs are actually going to get into somebody's mouth? Not very many. And, you know, it, like, you might spend your whole life, you know, living in that gut, fighting with the immune system of your host and never be able to pass on any DNA. You may never find a mate because that person may not have two worms inside them. There are all kinds of things that can go wrong for a parasite, and it's only, like, one in a million of your offspring that actually have a go of it. So, you know, it, it, life could be hard for the parasite in terms of trying to get your life history done, but... Um, if you're, if that's, if that's where you live, it, maybe it's a happy life as to the, the level of happiness of parasites. That's a whole other book, I think, but it's inspiring to look at how ingenious they can be. Well, I, I thought it was interesting because some parasites actually seem to take fairly good care of their hosts. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there, there's, um, the one that my dad loves when I tell him about is, um, there's a, so, so bats are flying around at night and they're eating moths and a lot of moths have evolved the ability to hear bats as they're coming. And so they have these, these ears on their wings, which is basically just a, a membrane on the wing that vibrates when a high pitched noise, like a bat echolocation call hits it. And when it vibrates, it sends a nerve signal to the brain of the moth and then the moth does an evasive maneuver. And it's really cool. And it's a great system. So moths have evolved this and they use it to avoid bats. Now, there's a parasite of moths, which is a little mite, and it has found that it can live quite happily on the ear of a moth. And it does that, but as a, as a result of doing this, it makes the moth ear stop working. And so the danger now is that that moth is going to get picked off by a bat any minute. So what the parasite does to look after its moth host is if it's moved in and it's totally, like this parasite and all of its offspring are totally swarming all over the ear on the left wing, none of them will touch the right wing because that way the moth can still hear the bats and it can still avoid them. So as long as they leave one ear good, they will go ahead and just wreck the one ear that they have and they look after their hosts that way. And so this is this is a very, very cool system. But other times the whole point of the game for the parasite is for their host to die. So like if you have a, uh, there's a, a parasite that, that goes from cats and it can get into rats and then it needs to get back into a cat again for the life cycle to continue. So once this parasite is inside a rat, it wants nothing more than for the rat to be picked off by a cat. And so the challenge for the parasite is how do I manipulate this rat so that it will get eaten by a cat? And the, the solution, it's called toxoplasma, and this is brilliant. The solution is that it rewires the rat's brain in a kind of a terrifying way. So if, a, if you take a normal rat and you expose it to the smell of cat urine, it will smell the cat urine and it will be immediately scared. The, the, um, the wiring is such that as soon as that particular smell goes into the nose, the wire goes straight straight to the fear center of the brain, it fires off, the, the rat is terrified and it runs away and it doesn't spend any time near there. And this is a great thing that rats have evolved to avoid getting eaten by a cat. But when the parasite toxoplasma is inside the rat, it forms cysts in the brain and those cysts rewire things. So not only is it no longer scared of cat urine, but if a rat that is infected with this parasite smells cat urine, it gets sexually aroused. Like it, it's turned on and then it's more likely to stick around, more likely to get eaten by a cat and the parasite gets into a cat and the parasite wins. And, and this is very cool when you have parasites that are actually controlling the behavior, not just the, the, the health, but the act, like actually manipulating the behavior of their hosts so that they can do what they need to do. And the, the real kicker with toxoplasma is this is a parasite that humans can get. So if you've ever heard that, you know, pregnant women aren't supposed to change the kitty litter, it's because of this parasite that can go from cat feces. And if, if a human accidentally gets some of that in their mouth when they're 
changing the kitty litter and some dust gets kicked up or whatever, if a pregnant woman does this, it can really harm the fetus. But if the, if it's not a pregnant woman, if it's just a, a human you know that isn't pregnant, um, this parasite goes in and it does its rat thing, thinking that it's inside a rat. It goes, it forms cysts, and it rewires and tinkers with the brain. But because the human brain is a little bit different from a rat brain, um, the wiring doesn't work the same way. So believe me, people have done the obvious experiment of taking people who, are, who have this parasite and having them smell cat urine, and it does not turn them on. Otherwise, that would be an awesome, like, cologne ad or something like that. But what it does do is if people have this parasite, it lowers the reaction time, and it actually makes measurable differences to their personalities. So if people take standardized personality tests, um, people who have been exposed to this parasite actually answer slightly differently overall than people who don't have the parasite. And that's all very, very cool, but the thing that makes it totally terrifying is that by some estimates, what I've seen, um, one out of every three Canadians has got this parasite. I think that might be an overestimate, but in the States, it's one out of every eight, eight people. And in places like Brazil, it's like two-thirds of people. So it's really, um, it's part of what's been shaping humans and our evolutionary history is these parasites that are in us, that are manipulating us. And that's just one we know about that we've just figured out in the last couple of years. What else might be out there, you wonder? And it's it just, and that's just us. Never mind what's happening with animals. And as a result, I think parasites are just uh, the greatest thing in the whole world. This is Science for the People, and I'm here with the author of Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You, Dan Riskin. And we'll be back with more after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by Dan Riskin, evolutionary biologist, co-host of Daily Planet on Discovery Canada, host of Animal Planet's Monsters Inside Me, and author of Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You. So in our, in our continuing tour of the seven deadly vices as exhibited by the animal world, we're actually going to, to skip over gluttony and wrath, mainly so we can leave enough room for what I consider the best part of this book, which is envy. Uh, so where do we see envy in nature? Envy. That's a tricky one. That When I was putting together the seven deadly sins, it seemed like a really great idea until I got to envy. And then I was like, oh man, envy? Is it possible that animals could actually be envious of one another? Is it possible that an animal could look at what another animal has and say, I wish I had that? And fortunately for me, there are some researchers who have asked those exact same questions and actually shown that animals can exhibit envy. So the really cool um, example of this is these experiments that involve monkeys. And what they do is they take these monkeys and they put them side by side in a cage and they have them, you know, give stones to their researcher. They do like a little party trick or something like that. It's not important what the little task is, but they'll do it. And in, as a reward for doing this meaningless task, they will get some grapes. Now, monkeys love grapes. They, they just love them. Or they get some cucumber. And monkeys do like cucumber, but they don't love it the way they love grapes. But they'll still do the task for cucumber because, hey, it's better than nothing. So what they did is they take monkeys by themselves. You can feed them grapes. You can feed them cucumber. doesn't matter. But then you put them side by side in cages. Now, if a monkey is getting cucumbers and it can see the monkey next to it getting grapes for the same work, it will get pissed. It will throw the rocks at the researcher that's doing the experiment or it'll just 
stop playing. And, and this is good evidence that these monkeys have a sense of what other organisms are finding in the world and what they think they're entitled to. And, you know, like, it's a slippery slope before you start ascribing too many human ideas of how we experience things. And, but, but the researchers have been very, very careful. And, I'm, and I go through that in quite a bit of detail in the book to say that, you know, these animals really do, you know, they do exhibit for what looks for all intents and purposes like it might be actual envy. But to do those experiments, you need all kinds of controls. You need to set everything up. And so the, to, to try to open it up and look for other places this exists in the world, I loosened the bootstraps a little bit and I said, all right, let's just look for things that animals do that look like they could be motivated by envy and try to see what we come up with. And so things like stealing food from other animals, that might just be a strategy for getting food or it might be envy. But at the end of the day, animal stealing food is one of the most interesting things you can find out in nature. And, and it's a really important evolutionary pressure. If you think, you know, like the famous one is when you watch Lion King, you know, you see all the nice lions that are being so noble and nice predators, and then the hyenas that are so bad and ooh, so evil, and oh, you dirty, dirty hyenas, how dare you steal the food? The truth is, when you actually go and look at how these animals interact, the lions steal from the hyenas just as often as the hyenas steal from the lions. They're both jerks. They're both, you know, real jerks about it. They steal food from one another all the time. But cheetahs, they go to, you know, beautiful, gracile animals that can run so fast, they're smaller than those other animals. And so they get stolen from all the time and they can't steal. They're not big enough to steal from hyenas or anything like that. So cheetahs are always on the losing end of this to the point that cheetahs, if they hear lions or hyenas calling in an area, they won't even bother trying to hunt because a cheetah could spend all the energy to find the food item, chase it down, tackle it, and then kill it and then just have it stolen. And this is a major problem for cheetahs. And it may be one of the things that, that makes it very hard for them to make a comeback because their numbers are down so far. In fact, there's another animal called an African wild dog and their populations are way down but when they set aside a reserve for them, the lions and the hyenas do so well in those reserves that the African wild dogs can't catch a break. Every time they kill something, it gets stolen by one of these other predators. And so they've actually found that the, the, the dogs that they set this whole reserve aside for don't hunt there. They leave the park because there are too many lions and hyenas that are there. And they'll go and hunt outside the park because they can't handle the competition. And so theft among animals, whether it's motivated by true greed or, or true envy or not, is um, is definitely a huge part of how animals live their lives. And so you've got, you know, animals stealing from one another. And the other place that I think envy really gets interesting is when you start talking about mating and, you know, jealousy and, and envy of somebody's mate and things get interesting there as well. Well, before we get to the mating part, because I feel like we're almost back to lust again, but there's there's actually 200 kinds of ants that participate in theft on kind of a grand scale, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, so there there are these ants that, if you can imagine like a whole ant colony and there's a queen inside it and then all these workers are going out and they're finding food and they're bringing food back to the colony and they're feeding the queen and they're feeding the larvae that are developing and all this stuff and it all works like a giant, almost like a big living thing and people call them super, those, those ant colonies, they call them super organisms, that's a really common term for that because it almost lives like a giant giant organism that has a whole bunch of individual ants that are like its its little cell 
cells that all sort of live together. But you have this other ant called Epimerma, which means above ant. So it gives you a little clue about what's going to happen. This female will go in and she will attack the guard ants in the colony. And then she will smear their smell all over her so that she smells like she's one of the ants that belongs there. And once she's done that, she's completely unrecognizable as an intruder to the ants in the colony. And then she can move through the colony completely cloaked, you know, walking right through there as though she belonged, even though she's a total intruder and doesn't belong there. She will make her way to the queen's chamber. She will strangle the queen and kill her with her mandibles, killing the queen. And then she will just start laying eggs of her own and pretending she is the queen. And the whole colony has no idea that they're being duped. And so the whole colony gets stolen, gets taken over so that now this ant is having its babies reared by the the ants that it's enslaved. And what's incredible is this is not just something this jerky ant does sometimes. This is how Epimerma makes its living. It is an obligate parasite of the colonies. It moves in there and it takes over until it wears the colony out and then its offspring will go and do the same thing again. And you have other kinds of ants where they will go and they'll do what's called a slave raid where they'll attack another ant colony, steal all the babies in their little larval sacks, bring them back to their own colony so that when those ants hatch, they think they're in their own nest and then they start working and doing all the work. And and you you always find those slaves living in these ant colonies. They can't live without them. And so, again, it's all these examples from nature that things are actually quite terrible when you go out there. There are some really tough things going on out there and animals are willing to do horrible things to one another all in the name of passing on their DNA. Okay, and with that, you can bring the sexy back, sir. There's uh, yes. well, <laughs> Specifically, I, I would love to talk about sneaker males. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sneaker males. I mean, there is nothing better than sneaker males. You know, like, yeah, there, lust is one chapter, but a little bit sex is everywhere, and it, it keeps coming up. It's just, that's the way it is. I've 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 done a bunch of appearances on the Craig Ferguson show, and the thing that everybody points out when they watch them is like, why is it always about penises, Dan? And I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question is, but the penises are interesting, sex is interesting, and sneaker males are like the creme de la creme of weird, sexy awesomeness. So imagine, if you will, a cuttlefish on the Great Barrier reef and if you don't know what a cuttlefish is it's kind of like a squid and these things are they're called giant australian cuttlefish they're big they weigh like 20 pounds and they swim around on the reef and they're doing their thing and you have males and you have females and they're all having sex but the problem is that it's the big tough males who get to have sex and the smaller males are getting picked on they can't get anywhere near the females because the big tough males keep aggressively defending the females in fact you'll have a little group of females and there will be a big male that's defending that group of females and won't let any other males near it and he'll go in every once in a while and mate with one and then he'll come back out and fight all the males and if you're a small male life kind of sucks because you'd like to have sex but you can't because of that stupid big dumb male who's in the way so here's your strategy sneaker male instead of trying to fight with the big tough guy which would be a losing proposition what you do is you pretend you're a female you change your coloration you hold your arms like a female you act the way a female does and then you swim right past the big tough male and go in with all the other females and sit there as though you're part of the colony that he needs to defend. Now, the big dumb male, stupidly, will just be like, oh, I got another female. I'll go mate with her later, but for now, I'm going to fight with some guys. And so while that's happening, you are discreetly mating with as many females as you can mate with. And it works. And they pass on DNA this way. The sneaker male strategy really works. And it's not just cuttlefish. This happens in frogs. It happens in bats. It happens in all kinds of animals. And it's glorious because it gives you an alternate path. And when you imagine like evolution and you think about what DNA gets passed on, it means that not only does big tough guy DNA 
DNA get passed on, but also weird mimic a female DNA gets passed on too. And so that becomes part of what that species is. It's not like the, the strange thing that shouldn't be part of it. It's part of the beautiful sort of like great bouquet of DNA that exists in the species. And it just makes everything way cooler when you have these sneaker males doing that kind of thing. It's funny, but it's also glorious. This is Science for the People, and I'm joined by Dan Riskin. He's the author of the book, Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You. Okay, last but not least, uh, pride. And I, and I figure we actually won't need to say that much about it because humans seem to have this category wrapped up. Do we not? I think we do. I mean, you. when I got to the pride chapter of the book, I thought it was time to really reflect at all the different things that are out there. And one of the big things that I'm totally, one of my big sort of great missions in life is to make people question our relationship with nature and to think about how we fit. And, you know, IPCC reports come out and we know that things are bad with, with uh, greenhouse gases. We know that we have problems with fisheries. We know that clean drinking water is a major problem. We can see all these ways in which humans are impacting the earth negatively. And we're having a hard time figuring out how we should fit because, you know, it's one thing for us all to say, yeah, we should live naturally, but nobody wants to live in a Canadian winter without a house. Like, we, we all want... The, the, what we have in terms of amenities. And so trying to pretend we're more natural than we are and that we should somehow revert to the way things were 3,000 years ago, I don't think is the best solution to these problems. I think the best solution to these problems is to take some pride in the fact that we have done as much as we have as scientific thinking you know, primates and that we've come up with a scientific method and that we can make measurements with satellites of ocean acidification and we should use that and we should go full steam ahead with research and technology and we should support science and we should support scientists and we shouldn't fire them all from the government. We need scientists if we're going to survive as a species. And so I really, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that humans, you know, if, if pride is the belief that you're better than or, or that you're different from all the other species, humans aren't better than the other species, but we definitely are different. We definitely can do things that the other species can't. And, you know, early in our interview, I made an analogy to these mice of Gough Island that are just eating themselves out of house and home and are headed for an evolutionary dead end. And I don't think we need to live like that. We could if we wanted to behave naturally, but that would be stupid. We can see the forest for the trees. We know what's what the big picture is. And I think we need to take some pride in how we are different from the other organisms that are out there and do something constructive with it so that we can persist as a species. And, and you know, if it sounds like a, a bashing people over the head with some kind of a, you know, a, a mission statement or something like this, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just, for me, the book is, a, is an exploration of how beautiful the natural world world is, how exciting it is, and how we fit into it. And I, the conclusion that I came to after doing this exploration myself was to say, wow, this is even more worth preserving than we could even possibly get our heads around. We've got to do something, and I think science is the way forward. Well, one of my concerns, I think, uh, is uh, throughout this episode, uh, I think we're probably fairly guilty of anthropomorphizing. And isn't that problematic? bestowing human characteristics on animals and, and other species. Isn't that a part of the romanticizing nature that you're trying to have us avoid? What I'm trying to help people do is form a visceral, emotional connection with the natural world. If you feel grossed out by nature, um, then that's kind of cheating too. I mean, the whole point of, of science is to be, you know, to be a calculator and to, to look at the data and only, uh, you know, only use what the data tell you and not try to extrapolate beyond the data. The danger with anthropomorphizing is you start to try to imagine what it's like to be inside the head of that female bed bug and you start imagining what it's like for her and if you're trying to really understand bed bugs, you should not be doing that. But if 
if you're a reader of my book and you are just exploring the natural world and feeling passionate about it, it's okay to feel emotions. It's okay to try to imagine. You, you won't get it right. We can't possibly imagine what it's like to be a bed bug, but it's okay to try. And it's, it's okay to have fun and to laugh and to giggle about this stuff because we're not doing science. We're just looking at the beautiful world that science has uncovered. So as I went through the scientific papers to put this book together, um, you know, I was seeing those cold, hard, you know, uh, data coming out. But, you know, even in those scientific papers, you could see the scientists smiling a little bit. It, it's, it's a beautiful world. And what I'm trying to help people do is have an emotional attachment to it. Because, to be honest, that's where I get my, my thrill about science. I can do science with the best of them. Like, I know how to design an experiment and all that stuff. But what gets me up in the morning is my love of bats, my love of the natural world. And that's what I'm sharing. Dan, lovely to have you here. Oh, the pleasure's mine. Thanks so much for talking to me. And we've linked to Dan Riskin, author of Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You, on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On the next episode of Science for the People, we're looking at the science of the ultimate punishment. Pharmacologist and science writer David Kroll joins us to discuss the chemistry of the drugs used in lethal injections. We'll talk to law professor Samuel Gross, editor of the National Registry of Exonerations, about the rates of false convictions in death penalty cases. And we'll speak to Johns Hopkins University psychiatrist Dr. James Harris about the complex issues at the intersection of capital punishment and intellectual disability. That's next week on Science for the People, on your local radio station, or online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Phil Plate, best known for his extremely popular bad astronomy blog, which you can find on Slate. You may also know him from reading one of his three fantastic books, Bad Astronomy, Death from the Skies, or Two to the Seventh Nerd Disses, A Significant Quantity of Disrespect. Or you might have seen him on the Discovery Channel show Bad Universe. Usually when we have Phil on, we talk a lot about space, but today we wanted to talk to him about something a little different. In addition to being an astronomer, author, blogger, public speaker, and science documentary host, Phil is also the science director for Science Getaways. And since everybody has summer holidays on the brain, we thought this would be the perfect time to talk about adding a little science to your summer vacation. Phil, welcome as always. Thanks, Rochelle. It's always nice to be on. So first of all, what is Science Getaways? Science Getaways is a basically a science vacation. What we do is uh, we take uh, an interesting place, some place you'd want to go anyway for a four or five day vacation, and we add science to it. So we bring in scientists. I'm there and I do uh, stargazing, talk about astronomy. We also uh, we have uh, sometimes a geologist if we're going to someplace interesting geologically and uh, they will go on hikes and take a look at the interesting geology and do nature hiking as well. A biologist or a naturalist look at plants and animals that are indigenous to the area. And we do this because the idea is that when I go on vacation, I always wind up going someplace where there's something interesting going on and I want to learn more about it. You know, if you're in the mountains, how old are these mountains? What caused them? What are they doing to affect the environment around them and the geology around them? And then I wind up looking it up myself. And I'd rather 
have a geologist with me. I can go walking along and they can point out that rock and say, oh, this is a piece of, of granite and it's from this and that. And you can learn a little bit more about where it is uh, you are and what you're doing. And, and for me, that adds a, an extra dimension to any place I visit. And that's why we started Science Vacation, Science Getaways. That sounds really cool. Um, what's the backstory here? What inspired the idea? Was there a moment or just that constantly wanting to, to learn more about your surroundings when on holiday? Well, certainly the latter. It got pretty good when we were traveling around and going to some really interesting places and just wondering what was going on around us. But there was, in fact, a moment. We were on a cruise. And uh, there are a lot of science and, and skeptic cruises and things like that. And my wife and I aren't really cruise people necessarily. It's kind of crowded, and when you get off the boat, you have to do this and that, and there's not very much time. You know, here's this really fantastic place. Now you get three hours in it, and then you get back on the boat. And it's just, so we thought, why not do this where people go to someplace and then stay there? And it was my wife's, really was her idea to start this all up. And it was her idea to do these preferentially, if we can, on ranches. So we actually do these on uh, dude ranches, working uh, horse and cattle ranches. So that's a lot of fun. There's horseback riding. They, they tend to be in beautiful areas uh, in the mountains. You can go biking, hiking. There's a ton of ranch activities. The food is usually really good. You get to hang out with the other people who come along. Family-style dinners is something we try to do so that everybody's in one room at the same time. You make a lot of friends there, and we, we really like this. And what we found is that we get a lot of people coming back again and again because they're enjoying themselves so much. So tell us about some of the past science getaways that you organized. The first one we did was in Colorado at a ranch called Sea Lazy U, a rather upscale, lovely, working dude ranch. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we wanted to do something local so we could get a taste of it and figure out what we were doing. It worked so well, we branched out, and we've done one in uh, Tucson, Arizona, which was lovely. We had some uh, nice observing with the telescope and uh, a lot of really interesting places to go to visit the, the desert landscape. We've been to Oregon to do a volcano ranch, and that was just all volcanoes all the time. It was amazing. We went into a lava tube. There was kayaking in an old uh, volcanic caldera. And uh, this time, actually, we're going to Colorado again. We're going to Gunnison, which is out in western Colorado, where there's a tremendous canyon called Black Canyon, and it's very old. Some of the rocks there apparently are over a billion years old. And I didn't know there was anything that ancient in, uh, in the States. I know up in Canada, you've got stuff that's over a billion years old, but down here I didn't know. So uh, it's all very interesting, all very surprising. And in the meantime, it's just a lovely vacation. We're not, we're not taking anything away from a vacation. We're adding to it by having talks and, and just chats about science. And the scientists are there the whole time, so you get a chance to actually really hang out with them and, and talk to them in depth about what it is you find the most interesting. So aside from yourself, who has a background in astronomy and can, uh, I'm sure, wax on about the skies forever, what other kinds of scientists <laughs> much, do you bring probably, with yeah. you? Well, we've had uh, a geologist that we hired initially, and we wound up really, really liking her. Her name is Holly Brunkle. She'll be coming with us to uh, Gunnison. She actually lives out there. She is uh, attending college out there. She's getting a Ph.D., and, and she's really wonderful, very knowledgeable about uh, the geology of the area, Colorado. And uh, we took her to Oregon as well, and she's just terrific. We've had a local biologist. We've had some thoughts about what other kind of sciences we want to do. The biology we've done is usually local flora and fauna. It might be interesting to do something else, to, to have 
uh, a trip someplace where there may, might be research being done or, or out in the field where you could bring in different types of scientists. Anything like that, I think, will work because it's just it's science. It's everything, right? You can, you can bring in any kind of scientist you want as long as it fits. And so we've got some ideas for future uh, getaways. I don't know if I won't really want to give everything away, but you could do something like out in wine country and have a I think it's pronounced an oenologist, somebody who studies wine, learn about how it's made. You could go river rafting, learn about river ecology. Uh, we've actually thought about uh, doing other types except science, maybe having um, history tours and things like that. I know those are very popular, but we would put our own spin on those and, and bring in uh, the people we like and not just have one company do it. Yeah, I handle the astronomy uh, a lot of the time, and that's a lot of fun for me. We also have a geologist. Her name is Holly Blunkle. We've had her come on a couple of these getaways, and we're going to have her with us in Gunnison. She's actually uh, out in that area getting her Ph.D. in geology, and she's extremely knowledgeable and friendly. Uh, we love her to pieces. We've had biologists, naturalists, and we're talking about branching out. We may go to some more interesting places where we can learn more about the local flora and fauna, where it might be a tropical rainforest or a more desert environment, things like that. The sky is, is sort of not the limit here. We can do whatever we want because science encompasses everything. So you know, whatever kind of science people are interested in, you know, we're willing to listen and, and do something along those lines. I don't think a lot of people really thought, even, you know, people like me, I love science, and I never really thought about the idea of kind of taking a science-themed vacation. Uh, and now it's kind of all I can think about. I'm really sad. I've already got plans for this summer. <laughs> Excellent. I'm steepling my fingers and tapping them together right now. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a funny idea. I never would have thought of it. It was my wife's uh, idea. She's brilliant in this kind of stuff. And there are other things that exist like this. You can go on eclipse cruises, and there are uh, places you can go where you can go observing for a night and things like that. Um, I don't know of too many other companies, or, or however you want to phrase that, uh, people who are taking other people in and providing different kinds of science over time and making it woven into the vacation itself. You can come and do this, and if you don't want to participate in any of the science stuff, that's fine by us. You're going to a very cool ranch with a lot of good food and a lot of fun stuff to do, and if you want to do that, that's great. Um, however, we're also throwing in all this other stuff, and I find that people dig that. There are science, for lack of a better word, groupies out there, aficionados, uh, enthusiasts. I would consider myself all of these things. And uh, I just wish there had been something like this years ago for me to go and do, because uh, honestly, um, it's, it's not work at all for us. It's work getting it set up and ready. Then when we go, it's just fun. We have a great time, and we love meeting everybody. I wish there had been something like this for me a few years ago, because honestly, when we do this, it's a lot of work uh, preparation. My wife does most of it. She's the organized one. I would probably wind up setting somebody on fire if, if I were in charge of this, so she does that. Uh, but for me, uh, just going to these and doing what I love doing, taking the telescope out, um, talking about astronomy, and then going on these hikes, digging up rocks, whatever, it's so much fun. And I meet so many interesting people from all over the country. I love it. And uh, I hope other people do, too. And it seems to be the case. It kind of seems like science camp, but for adults. That is such a great description. I wish I had thought of it. But clearly, I'm incapable of saying anything in under 5,000 words. But <laughs> well, feel free to use it wherever you it. like. I'm um, going to make that into a bumper sticker. <laughs> so are these holidays mainly adult focused? Are they family friendly? What types of people tend to uh, show up? Well, you know, we're scientists, so we're experimenting and seeing what happens. Uh, it's mostly adults. We've had some kids, different ages, 
And actually, the one we're doing now in Gunnison, Colorado, we are making it more family-friendly to see how that works out. There are things for the kids to do all day, the gr- things for the grown-ups to do all day, things we can all do together. And hopefully that way, families who are taking vacations over the summer when there is already summer holiday, that'll give them something to do. This then becomes the family trip for everybody. Uh, we'll see how this works out. The way, the way we've got it planned, I think it's going to work great. If I were a kid, I would love to do something like this for a few days. So are all of your getaways kind of cross-disciplinary themed, or do you ever do one, or maybe are you thinking about doing one that's more specific and it's science-focused? We have an overarching theme, but we don't stick to it terribly well. So, for example, in Tucson, it was space. And our guest speakers were Charlie Walker, who was a multiple shuttle astronaut, who talked about the experiments he did up there. And uh, he he brought his wife, and we went bird watching, and he's very approachable and and wonderful guy, so that was nice. And Jeffrey Notkin, who was the co-star of Discovery Channel's Meteorite Men TV show, and he brought along metal detectors, and we went out searching for meteorites. We didn't find any. We found lots of bullets, it turns out, in Tucson, Arizona, maybe not terribly surprising. That was kind of neat, actually. We think those were pretty old. We're not sure, but they, they were obviously many decades old. And that was that theme. And in Oregon, it was all volcanoes and astronomy. If, if I'm going, it's astronomy. But like I said, we're trying other ideas. There may be more uh, biological-focused ones if we happen to find an area. You can imagine any place in the world you could do these. We're keeping them in the States for now. But, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe Hawaii. Uh, that would be certainly a fantastic place to learn about the birds, the plants, the animals that live there, uh, the geology. And, of course, astron- astronomy is a huge, huge factor in, in Hawaii there with many, many professional observatories. So, you know, that sounds like an ideal place. And we're, we're, we're talking about it right now. If you ever go to Hawaii, I'd probably be one of the first people signed up, i got to say. Well, you know, there's cool we stuff a lot out of there. people... Oh, yeah. I've never been. Um, I'm going actually uh, in September for a science fiction convention, and we're going to poke around there and see what we can see about having a science getaways there. And uh, a lot of the people who have come to the science getaways in the past, you know, we mentioned, where do you want to go? And a whole bunch of them said, yeah, Hawaii. But all right, uh, it's fine with me. I'll go to Hawaii. (laughs) Don't have to twist my arm. Yeah. Oh, man, I can't wait. How often are you planning these science getaways? A couple times a year? That's a good question. I would like to do this more, but two times a year seems to be a, a fairly good comfort zone for us until we can branch out and try to make them a little bit bigger. The interesting thing is we don't want them to get too big. We want to keep it to around 40 people. We find that if you have too many, nobody gets to know each other very well, or at least some people don't, um, and too few makes it very difficult uh, on the economics. 40 people is actually just about right. You can have uh, it's a pretty good crowd. Uh, people make friends that way. Um, it's easy to move around and get from one place to another. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that that's the sweet spot. And as we do this, we'll be able to do more a year, maybe, maybe as many as three or four. Are you only doing sort of summer themes right now? Or do you have any, have you done any winter ones? Well, it turns out uh, there are different types of weather in different parts of the country at different parts of the year. Who would have guessed? Crazy. So, uh, yeah, so Colorado is, is so nice in the summer, uh, and there's so many different things to do that we like, we like doing that. But Tucson was in, um, in the early, well, I guess you would say late winter, early spring, and the weather there was lovely. It was warm during the day and chilly at night, but very nice. And there are places in the south we can go in the winter and places in the north in the summer. So I don't see any real restrictions uh, on, on when necessarily we have to do these.
Phil, thanks so much for being here. And it sounds really like a fantastic way to spend a summer holiday. My pleasure. It's, it's easy to plug something when you really, really like it. And I really, really like doing these. So my pleasure. If you want to learn more about Phil Plate or Science Getaways, you can start on the website sciencegetaways.com. And that link will be available on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. And while you're visiting websites, we'd love for you to check out our homes on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, where you can keep up with show news, chat with other Science for the People fans, or get a sneak peek for next week. And of course, you can always find us on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show, Listen to past episodes, and if you're feeling generous and full of affection for us, you can also leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.